So what just came to my mind sitting here um, in our practice field was the teaching of patience with the non-production of dharmas. And uh, this way that the mind is forever producing something, the flow of production, of creation, of phenomena, um, of our stories, um, and everyone else's stories that flow through our experience of uh, within the field of our awareness. It's uh, rising. And in these practices that we've been doing of turning the tension back into the mind, actually. What is mind? Often we're looking at the phenomena um, through the lens of vipassana, dhamma vijaya, investigation of dhammas. We're looking through a particular lens, not so much as the content and why this came about, whether we like that it came about or not, Although we, we look at that, but seeing it through this frame of anicca, it's the changeability, dukkha, there's uh, this independable, undependable nature, changeable nature, is undependable, therefore we depend on, lean into thought, description, and then that, that's unstable, so that feeling of things falling, changing. Um, no, no ground. Anatta. It's not really able, as we look more deeply, to find some core, firm solidity in, in anything, so any of the phenomena. The turning from looking at the phenomena to looking back into who's the one experiencing all this? What's that that's receiving this experience, receiving these impressions, and what happens when there's a, some cessation of that movement to identify with the phenomena, to keep being moved and pulled into, even very subtly, that pull into the sense of time going somewhere, or that sense of resisting what is arising, that push and pull around the experience, and what happens when that softens, and we maybe there's some space. Maybe we notice some space, and nothing much happening. <laughs> and there can be this sense of, well... It's not very familiar, it's better create something, (laughs) better think about something, Um, better figure out my problems, this is a good space, do a sort of archaeological dig into all of those things that need to be sorted out, you know, before we know I've got a few weeks left now only, and uh, and then there's the end of the world coming, so I've got to sort all this stuff out, quick, you know. And, uh, so that sense of time and pressure and think, 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 cogitate, cogitate, cogitate. But this lovely phrase of being patient, 
Uh, with that which isn't producing the ground of just being aware of, of nothingness, no thingness, having to be somewhere that we find that at home. It's okay not to have to be shaped by something. Dharmas with a, a small d meaning literally a, a sort of a thing, that everything has a thingness about it. And when that sort of collapses a bit or is dissolved through that seeing, what then? You know, being that patient, listening in. the one that's listening in <laughs> into the deeper silence it's a, the pauses as we talked about sometimes one of our teachers Ajahn Sumedho called Minding the Gap was a bit of a colloquialism in England is when you get on the tube train or the subway they call the tube there before you step off they go mind the gap (laughs) mind the gap mindful of the gaps in this this karma this creations of the mind karoti that which creates so has the idea of being plaited together Constructions, weaving, the weaving of the storylines. Time and me and continuity and movement. And somewhere that we're headed. And as soon as we take that as a premise of me, you know, attaining or moving or having something I haven't quite got yet, then we're already a little bit off the mark. Already generating that experience of that dukkha. That sense of struggle or not quite good enough or not getting there. So we've the chance to really see that sometimes and just being patient with these deeper mechanisms, this sort of engine of samsara, that the mechanisms of the mind that are, that, that are so deeply wedded into and in our nervous system and our energy body and in the patterning. The thought form so deeply into that movement into or away from. And how seductive that is and how often we're in that shape. So sort of deconstructing, slowing the space, you know, takes this amount of containments to sometimes begin to be able to see the subtler mechanisms that push and pull and to tolerate. It's going to be very uncomfortable to tolerate nothing much here. to acquire in that space a taste for that nothing much and realize it's a a gateway. A a gateway to to more peace or feeling uh, the release or dispassion. 
that sort of um, <clears throat> friction and heat in some ways of the mind fevered a little bit, even subtly, without becoming energy into whatever needs to happen. It's not, there's no judgment value about that and that energy informed, investigated, illuminated and guided by clarity, by insight, by consideration is the energy that's important for us as we move into action, right action and so on. But there is a way that that action just becomes so habitual, so having this space that we're in to actually relinquish the need to move into something some way of being, some familiar shape, to be able to look at those core mechanisms. Or as Ajahn Chah would call, the wanting and the not wanting of the mind. I mean, it does feel a bit like ABC Dharma. (laughs) When are you going to get to XYZ? (laughs) Z. So, you know, but this, this is really this, this core mechanism. You have to reflect. How does that feel? And this moments of softening out of that, relinquishing, coming back to and being present with something so simple like breathing like ground, like one step after another. And you realize that it's quite a humble process, this meditative process. You know, the, the, the mind wants something more. The big awakening explosion, as I was talking about the other night. The big shift, you know. The Buddha just talked also about this is like a gradual process. Yes, awakening can be moments of something just dropping and shifts can happen but there's also there's a gradual that sort of that analogy of the the as you walk into the gradual slope going into the sea or going into the mist you don't know what moment you get wet or you don't know what moment that the shelf of the seabed suddenly just drops and you're in the depth so there's a lot about the patience in this practice and patience with what is not easy to be with and a lot of what we're with is often is the momentum of what has been created, what has gone before, that hasn't been illuminated, that hasn't been understood, that hasn't been met, that hasn't been digested as dukkha, healed, released. There can be a lot of feeling sometimes that can go very peacefully and then some, some difficult uh, state comes up, a hindrance or some old, really deep pattern and deep, um, uncomfortable feeling in those patterns. 
some unnameable, we feel, oh no, it's going wrong. You know, I should be getting more and more subtle, peaceful, lifting. By now, we should all be like floating somewhere a little bit. (laughs) On that lovely cloud I was talking about the other day, just, you know. But, you know, the, the way this path goes, one can have very subtle, profound experience and then almost like it opens a space for another level of what's uh, deep sankhara, these deep patterns, and whether that's in our personal karmic flow, whether it's ancestral, epigenetic, that's which handed down deeply in the energetic system of our body, ancestral, collective, planetary, or the interface of all of it. <laughs> you know, these, are, these can be very powerful experiences that can arise sometimes. It can, so the first practices I always remember with Goenkaji talking about like these sankharas, sometimes they're like lines on water. They just arise for a moment, you know, an irritation. Somehow you got a little bit knocked out of your, your pattern in the retreat. Someone got to something a little bit earlier than you and mind just maybe just moves a little bit like little irritation and you see it and it just you know not a big deal you just take a breath and you realize no it's okay well sometimes they're like lines drawn in sand there's a little more energy there maybe it takes you a few hours to recover and you find your mind start then thinking about um, how you got upset about something else and then what they did and what am I going to do about that? And then somewhere along the line, you start to see a pattern. You know, what's, what's, you know, the practice kicks in. Coming to the breath, exploring who's thinking this, who does this belong to, this kind of practices that we've been doing. And then you talk about some are like lines in, in uh, granite. They have a lot of energy. They've been, uh, you know, a lot, they're kind of historical almost. very primal feeling tone, energy, patterns, hindrances, however we name them, of, you know, aversion, fear, getting upset about something, going into disassociation, dullness, desire, lust, anger, you know, these kinds of, and then, and then, Forgetting, we forget, oh, you know, it becomes a bad thing. So being able to have patience, patience, not only with the non-production of dharmas, the emptiness, not having to fill the emptiness, but actually withstanding it. I remember this lovely Christian priest, when we were monastics, we had a lot of contact with other monastics, not only Buddhists, but also with other faiths. And because we shared something so in common. And I remember this very, very elderly Christian priest talking one day about his practice was waiting on the emptiness. And it was a lovely way of of a very sort of prayerful way almost, of attending to actually the unsubstantiality, the profound 
emptiness where everything is dissolving into all, all the time, each breath, each sound, each day, each decade. Being attending and patient, but also patient with the arising of the dharmas, the karmic momentum of what has gone before, what's been put in motion. And in a certain place, in a certain time in this practice, no, sorry, in a certain way, we're not so interested in why this has come to be and where this come from, and who does it exactly belong to. And I think that is a particular inquiry. We're more interesting, this has arisen in this way. It has come to be like this. I mean, we could go into a really deep philosophical thing about karma, vipaka, the, the, the results or the affects of what has been put into motion. You know, luckily the Buddha said if you try to really get to the bottom of it, your he- head would explode. So we can say, oh, that's good. That means we don't perhaps have to do that. But we could say this is how things have come to be. And in that way, it's just holding that with a little bit more dispassion, a little more patience, a little more space, a little more willingness, especially when things don't move as quickly as we want them to. They're a little bit more like we're in that granite territory. Then the practice shifts. So maybe we throw all the different techniques at it. Okay, I'm going to do metta now. I'm going to do the who. I'm going to do the breath. I'm going to sort of go stand on my head. I'm going to go do walking, you know, and then and then it still hasn't gone, you know, and then we can get really um, upset. You know, there's some way that Ajahn Chai will talk about. Sometimes it's just a question of patient endurance. There's some things that you kind of almost like babysit and sit out. And, you know, there is a skill about then not adding more to that formation and that dukkha, to that old sankara, literally meaning what's been put together somewhere along the way. And in a certain way, it doesn't really matter why or where or whose it is. Especially when the, the, the Bodhi, you talk about the Bodhisattva heart, is. She's a deeply patient heart, actually, having all the time in the world to be with the cries of the world. And, you know, we start here, the beings of this heart. The Bodhisattva isn't so much going, um, well, if the Bodhisattva has clear vision of the Dharma, probably can see causes and conditions. That's one of the faculties of a Buddha, of an awakened one. And maybe we get a sense and an intuitive sense of that. Maybe we do, things unfold and we see. But there, in, in a certain way, the way that the Bodhisattva is like, this is how things have come to be. And the task is, how do I meet this now? Whosoever it is, wherever it's come from, how do I meet this now? Because that's the real place we can intersect with that flow of karmic creation to bring it to Niroda, 
to cessation, to completion, to healing, to an end. Of course, not all things end because you just see it once. Remember when I used to go and listen to the wonderful Krishnamurti when I was a youngster. He used to rock up at a had a school just not very far from where I lived and a group of us would kind of go and hang out in these huge marquees and he had all of these hundreds of disciples that would come and he'd get very irritable actually because he would feel like you should have got the message by now <laughs> if you've seen it once it's finished and everyone would kind of nod and you kind of think you know that <laughs> this is not happening for everyone it certainly wasn't happening for me. And like years later, I thought, well, you know, maybe I just have to accept I have to see it a million times, you know, and it's still not quite finished. You know, I'm not quite there in that way. You know, but the power, the, the power of shifting the relationship to what's experienced, there's enormous power in that. It might, it, you know, it finishes in its own, according to the Dharma, finishes in its own momentum we can't you know we can and we do often apply a lot of will and you know fight and struggle whatever it is whatever the burden whether it's felt internally whether it's in the family whether it's you know the struggles that are going on enormous struggles on the planet but what we can add is this conscious awareness this patience with the non-production of dharmas, not adding more dukkha. It doesn't mean to say one doesn't maybe appropriately pick up challenge and struggle. There is definitely a place for that in the realm of bettering human and all beings. The condition, that's compassion. The Buddha did that. He tried to stop wars. He tried to stop people fighting over water. He didn't always succeed, actually. But he tried. It's a thing. Sometimes some karma was too strong. It played. It had to play itself out. But the point is, there was the rising up to meet and the power to meet as best as, you know, bring forth that awakened presence. So this is the training ground for that bringing to what is that awakened presence. Ajahn Chah would say this practice is preparation for when big things come. And then we can see how actually the mind can be so reactive around the most tiny things. You know, when we just get knocked out a little bit out of our pattern and our routine and our comfort zone, man, we can really you know, kick up a fuss. Mind can really get activated. It's important to see that and not to shame that or not to go, oh God, you know, I'm a hopeless practitioner. But say so this is an opportunity at this moment to be, bring that patience, to bring the inquiry to explore who does this belong to not so much who historically but more who 
to help empty that from the sense of self, from this is me, this is what I am fundamentally. This is one of his, he was saying, I think, earlier in the retreat, was, again, as Ajahn Chah was saying, those boulders that we pick up, when he said, are those boulders heavy? And the disciples said, oh, yes, they're very, very heavy. And he said, well, they're not if you don't pick them up. You know, so we have a lot of boulders that we've picked up. And we, you know, hold them really tightly. And if I hold this tightly enough, I'll help someone else. <laughs> Uh, you know, and it's like actually, sometimes one helps by releasing that holding and trusting something else, trusting a whole different flow of the living Dharma, as Ajahn Chah would call it, that we are in this practice to come into a place of deeper trust. He said it's a bit like this bell which is empty. And then, but if you fill it with stuff, because we, don't, we can't really, we've got to keep holding, I've got to sort this out, I've got to, you know, this is going wrong in my family, this is happening in the community, this is, you know, it can really get very heavy. So we put everything that we need, just in case, just in case, and we fill the bowl. And then when you tap it, we can't really re- resonate. When something comes to meet us, we can't really clearly resonate and see and respond to the accurately, beautifully, appropriately to what is arising from that patience with the non-production of dharmas. And if we trust the emptiness, is not really empty. It's full of potentiality. quantum potentiality could go anything could move from that emptiness when it's not constricted in the pathways of the mind the habitual call it the dongas in South Africa when the rain comes and rain can really come <clears throat> and then it comes down the mountains it creates these sort of I call them dongas these like hollows in the land and so when the rain comes, it goes down and deepens those dongas in the same way as the energy of the mind. It goes down those patterns, deepens them. Until we start to, in a way, we're damning that and looking and releasing from those and rewiring. So that when something comes and touches that emptiness, We can trust that the response will be appropriate. It's a mystery, that emptiness. It's like I remember one of my Dharma friends, Dharma teachers, Pam Weiss, when she first heard about, she started going to the Zen school, and she really didn't know what everyone was talking about. What is this Dharma? (laughs) Everyone's going on about... There's a Zen master. I think that's a fair question, actually. I think it's still fair to kind of keep asking that. But anyway, there's a Zen master that came to the Zen center. I don't know which one. It was a long time ago. And she said, what is this Dharma? And everyone laughed. But he took it very seriously. And he, he picked up his, his uh, teacup. And he said, the Dharma is what holds this together. 
it's a very... I mean, I don't know really what to say about that, but <laughs> I just like it. <laughs> I think it's just very cool. Something that's holding it all together. And so um, Max Planck in the um, quantum theorist, grandfather of quantum theory, same thing there is. He talked about the, the, the matter, the, the, the mind of matter. There is that which holds the implied in matter is the intelligence mind of matter the force everything is in this field this sort of consciousness field of consciousness you sort of cut a little piece out and this is this piece is me it's very different from you but then there's a way of holding our gaze where it softens in the room and you realize we're in this global space together not so individuated there's a way that one can hold that gaze and realize that you know you say oh this is this person they're from that country they have that particular kind of background and, you know, all the distinctions that we have. And you can keep looking and you say, well, these are just forms. These are just feelings. These are just perceptions. And you see, in some ways, we're we're sitting in a field of emptiness. And then there's this magical appearance of here we are. So this patience on the non-production of dharmas implies also just putting things down, letting things be, trusting in a different way, trusting that waiting on the emptiness, the listening, the deep listening practice that we've been doing around Guan Yin, the one that listens or regards, that takes what's heard back into the mind takes attention from what we're looking at back into who is the one looking. Yogo Kiense, the great Tibetan master, said, the mind is devoid of mind. (laughs) Can you actually find this thing called mind? I mean, certainly it's pretty productive. But can you find it? You know, does it? How does it exist? Where does it exist? Does it exist spatially? Does it have a color? Does it have a shape? It's, it's rather surprising that we don't really think about that very much. Just all oh, the mind's just thinking this and that and this. But what is this mind? I was saying to someone today an analogy. What I find quite helpful is like when you're in a movie theatre and you're looking at the movie and we, 
you know, it's really, sometimes it's great to go and see a movie. You get to sort of unplug from your own inner movie for a while. So it's a bit of a relief. You go and see someone else's production, which is much better put together. And hopefully it's a bit of a Hollywood ending where we can all go, everything's so fine, you know, it's okay. Um, But when you're in the movie, you're completely absorbed in the characters. You might be crying, you might feel frightened. You know, it's very powerful. But if you slowed it down and frame by frame, a bit like the meditation, we start to slow things down frame by frame. And you see it's not very cohesive, it's full of gaps, it's full of holes. It's just color, shapes, movement, perception, just flickering, pixelating out. But then if you look behind, so what's projecting this movie? And if you have a look behind, there's a, there's a projector... It probably isn't an old reel these days. I mean, the days when, but the projection has to. There has to. The source has to. There has to be some light. It projects out, and through a particular frame that creates then the storyline. When Dio Kienso was asked, "What is mind?" he said, "The nature of mind is actually clear light." clear light which is illuminating so that which illuminates so is that which illuminates so waiting or patience on the non-production of Dharma is like, that is like a recognizing that beyond the reactivity around the particularity there is that which is illuminating experience What is that? Turning attention to that. Turning the attention back into mind itself. Or listening in. It's the practice of a guanyin. Listening in to the ground of being, which is just a word. It doesn't mean to say necessarily there's some ground. Like go down to the basement and you'll find there's this ground. A certain way that language can't capture, of course. In this deep practice of reflection attending to both form and emptiness and the convergence as we've been exploring of forms arising from the ground of this of the unmanifested manifested was dissolving back into the unmanifested and that we can contemplate there's that which can contemplate and know Manifested, unmanifested, space and form. They're not exactly separate, but they're not exactly the same. There's space here. We notice the forms, we notice the particularities, but we don't necessarily notice the space it's all happening in. Or sounds, you say, well, this is a 
good talk, a bad talk, it's like when is the talk over? So I heard it before. What, what, you know, whatever the mind does around. The talk's constantly disappearing, actually. There is, actually isn't a talk. <laughs> sound and silence. They're not exactly the same, but they're not, they're completely interwoven. One can't appear, it seems, without the other. And awareness, phenomena, that which is illuminating, it's like the, the, it's all mind, isn't it? You can't say that's outside of the mind. You can't really say it's the totality of mind. So there's just ways of play, being playful in exploring some of these territories. You can really get very pedantic about how is this actually said in the text? How is this framed? And whose text says it right? So is it a little bit different in the Theravada from the Mahayana and the Vajrayana, you know, this teacher, that teacher? Um, and, you know, does our experience fit into this one or that? And these are all frames. These, these, you know, as, as Master Xinhua said, there's no real teaching of the Dharma. The Dharma can't be taught. The Dharma is, but there's provisional teachings. It's like a pointing to. It's like, you know, it's like the teachings arise in response to the many mutations and complexities of mind. And so the teaching arises. So it's provisional, it's time and place. Legend Chai, time and place. This teaching arises in response to that manifestation. There's hindrance and then there's a teaching. There's emptiness, there's a teaching. But he also said that these teachings are like, Sajjan Chah, like the peel of a fruit. You know, they, they're not, they're, they're the peel, they're not the fruit itself. You know, that if we eat and chew so much on the peel, then it comes a little bitter maybe. The point of the peel is to contain the fruit, it's important. So when people would say to him, well, what's Nibbana? And he said, well, it's like a banana. And he's like, well, what do you mean? You know, he said, well, no, if you, if you want to know what a banana is, you've got to eat it. Nibbana's the same. You know, you can talk about it, you can sort of make a photograph and put it on the wall and bow to the banana. You know, you can have a really great banana, you can have, you know, a decaying banana. And the point is, at some point, you know, we have to taste the banana, and then, and then we taste the banana. You know, to taste, to taste, to taste the peace, taste the relief. And we have moments. It's not that, you know, it's, like, it's so far away, I've got to go. <laughs> I'm going to do a 10-year self-retreat in a <laughs> cave. I've got to go and go to the Himalayas. I've got to find the guru who's going to knock me on the head and bam, I'm going to get it, you know. So I can tell you, I've sort of, there's a part of my psyche that's been in that for like, I'm like 42 years into the practice and I, I never quite got there. I remember we, we met this when we left the monastery. I felt so bereft. 
so lost, you know, like this tribe and this form, and we were kind of going to enlightenment together. Yeah, we were like, yes, and it kind of all fell apart. And we landed up, Kinisara and I, in India, and we went to see this amazing guru. He's like performing miracles and everything. Um, Sri Premananda down in Trishi. And he kind of took one look at me and just said, Don't worry. <laughs> it's like, Okay, yeah, I know, I know. I'm just full of it. I'm full of it. I know. I know. Well, I, you know, I. I don't know what to, you know, I don't know what to do. Just practice, you know. Well, but what, you know, just practice. What practice? Well, any practice. You know, just, like, just join a sangha. But what sangha? Any sangha, you know. It's like just <laughs> in a certain way, just get on with it. You know, just get on with it. Okay. It's like, okay, thank you. <laughs> that was a long, expensive journey to go and hear that, you know. Like, I sort of kind of knew that, but... You know, we forget. So this idea is like really far away, really, you know, really special people can have that taste of peace, that can have the sense of release. You know, the niroda, nibida, that sense of dispassion. But actually it's, it's, it's that we don't really recognize. It's like we don't recognize the space because we're looking for something a bit special in the space. We don't recognize the awareness because we want that special state somehow. But the, they say that Dharma nature is always inviting us in. It's an invitation, an open invitation, like a, like a magnet pulling. So in some ways we have to be pulled. We have to trust that pull. Release from the burden, release from holding on so tightly to our problems that we're working out. <sighs> it's very humbling. I, I think one sort of gets very defeated a lot um, in this practice, in this life. I think of our work, you know, 25 years, quite pretty much of a workout in South Africa. I would say I feel quite defeated. <laughs> I felt quite defeated to some degree in my experience as a monastic. I don't feel altogether completely successful as a Dharma teacher. <laughs> you know, I, I just think that sense of... Um, of not having to be successful, not having to make it in some internalized shape that we have some ideal. I remember talking to this CEO, top CEO, one of the top companies in South Africa, um, huge mining conglomerate thing. Um, just happened to be an old friend of Kitty Saro, and we'd land up at these really stressful Johannesburg cocktail parties. <laughs> I know, it's very strange to be a Dharma teacher with bankers and gold traders, and, you know, it was stressful. Uh, sort of the repartee and who can get the most brilliant idea, who can cut down who, and just sit there with, like, 
palpitations and they go, what do you do? Like, oh no, meditation teacher, <laughs> you know, completely invisible for the rest of the night. You know, it's like, and so anyway, just sort of sit through these. I mean, it was, I'd, I'd rather sit a month retreat in, in, in very difficult circumstance than go to a cocktail party like that. But, so, <laughs> and then have to announce you're a vegetarian and then God forbid if you're a vegan and then, you know, and then, um, anyway, I was sitting, this is very, you know, there was something very profoundly brilliant about this guy, something very perceptive, extraordinarily perceptive. I always thought if he'd actually been a practitioner, he would have been enlightened. He had such a, such a, but it was all devoted to, um, to that path of corporate success, getting to the top of the pile. And he knew it, and, uh, and he, was, he would name it, but he couldn't stop. And I remember one night sitting next to one of these cocktail parties, and he would just drink down a bottle or two of wine just to calm down. I mean, he'd just get very, very lucid then, and very just sort of get out his Manjushri sword of just cutting through everyone um, very brilliantly and terrifyingly awful. So anyway, I was sitting there and he just started to confide. He just turned around and he said, you know, I, um, I get a lot of fear. I'd been doing a lot of therapy training, so I, I sort of went, oh yeah, how, how is that? <laughs> <laughs> so I guess I had some use at that moment, something came. He said, well, <laughs> he said, I repress it all. I said, well, how's that? <laughs> he said, well, then I get these nightmares, these terrible nightmares that come up. You know, and, you know, I feel, you know, so he was, he was just talking. So I, I just I found the question forming, like, when, when, when does it stop? When, when do you get to stop? And his response was extraordinary. He said, when I'm successful. I mean, I, you know, he had everything. I didn't really think to ask, what is success for you? But in a way, I could relate, you know, even though it wasn't my, that oh, I'm not in that world, I wasn't in that world, but there is something that drives us when I get there. And unless we really see that mechanism that's driving us, we are, we're seduced by that and pulled along. And we might notice at some point we don't quite ever get there. We get to the beautiful place, the beautiful state, the right retreat. We're on retreat, we want to go home. We go home, we want to go back on retreat. It's this desire, tanha. So being humble, being patient, starting again. These are actually almost more useful than having a brilliant state, the most refined experience, although they're wonderful. But knowing how to practice at that edge. Knowing when you've been defeated and you're about to completely, you feel destroyed by something, upset, whatever, the Bodhisattva heart pauses, breathes, softens, compassion for yourself, for that state, for all of it. 
and commits to starting again, rises again and again and again and again. To have all the patience that's needed to be with how it is now, what's arisen now, what we're working with in our lives, without adding more dukkha. This patience is deep. Holding of faith to the patient heart, to the already awakened heart, to the already compassionate heart, to the deeply listening heart that's able to tolerate a lot more than we think we can. The mind says, I can't take this. Actually, yes, it can. That softening, breathing, holding faith, and not giving up on ourselves, not giving up on this heart, not giving up on this practice. Because it will, and it does, absolutely bear fruits in its own time according to the unfolding of the Dharma. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.